Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. Galaxy building. That's what we're going. I don't know if there's a one-on-one thrown on that or not. But well, it's, no, it's, just, no, it's just galaxy building. Cause, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Rob McCreary. I'm the creative director for Starfinder. I'm Chris Sims. I'm a developer for Starfinder. I'm Joe Cini. I'm a developer for Starfinder. <laughs> yeah, all right. We're all, so we're all in Starfinder. We're in the right place. So galaxy building is this kind of like world building, but it seems kind of weird to talk about world building when there's lots of worlds in Starfinder, and hence galaxy building. But we're going to talk kind of about, you know, how to how to build basically a setting to, to, to game in and some of the tips that we use and maybe some tips on how to flush out your own settings if you want to do that kind of stuff and uh, answer questions and all that kind of good stuff. So... And should kind of, should they jump in if they have questions, or should we just... Yeah, we can do that, too. Throw a hand up and we can... Yeah. yeah. Um, so you said we have to start with regressive capitalism, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, what I re- really meant, meant by that is you have to start... I, I like to start with points of conflict. Like, to me, like saying that there's a, a, a tyrannical star empire that spans part of the galaxy is building conflict, so... There you have the Atlantis Star Empire, and or the Swarm, like you know, the, the, the big, big threats. Mm-hmm. One place to start. I like scope. I like to know how big the galaxy is that I'm gonna deal with. Obviously, with Starfinder, we have the whole solar system packed worlds, and then we have these two kind of tiers of faster than light travel places you could go near space and that. That that also kind of it's funny, it wasn't that long ago that we were in a Starfinder meeting and we all looked at each other and were like, what do we think of as the difference between like the vast and, and near space in terms of like what kinds of things are there and what it's like to be there? And we, we had some similar ideas and then some things where we thought completely differently, I think, about what, what those places were like. So it was interesting. Does everybody not here have a difference between near space and the vast? So we so we can give we can give the big run. It's also kind of interesting to be like kind of sort of how the Starfinder setting developed uh, to begin with, because actually if you're talking about like a, a setting a setting that's an entire galaxy, it's like how do you even begin to start describing that or, or creating that? But um, as Joe said, the 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 uh, the setting is kind of focused on a single solar system, which is the Pact Worlds, um, and for us that actually comes from Pathfinder. Um, the original creative director for Starfinder, James L. Sutter, wrote a book for Pathfinder called Distant Worlds that described all the planets in the solar system of Galarian. And not much was really done in Pathfinder with that other than, yet yeah, there sure are planets, and the elves are from one of them, and there's like a Venus planet and a Mars planet and some other planets. And uh, so it seemed kind of like a really natural place to start. And so, because we could do a lot more with planets in Starfinder than, than in Pathfinder. So that kind of became the core of the setting. We took Galarian away and put it off somewhere, hidden away, um, so that everything in Pathfinder is safe. Um, and a space station called Absalom Station is in the place where Galarian once was. Um, the star stone that is in the city of Absalom is now inside the center of, uh, of the Absalom Station. And uh, so we kind of had that. That's our kind of core setting. There's oh, 14 worlds, I think, in, if you include Absalom Station. I think there's 14 worlds in the pack world, yeah. including the Adari. Yes, because that's a world, even though it's not a planet. And we added a few other things, like the Adari, which is the world ship of the Kasafas that kind of came in and functions as a as a world. Um, and then it was kind of like, well, obviously there's a whole big galaxy beyond just the just the pack worlds, and so we had one of the things we wanted to do was kind of in terms of creating that, we have the best race, and we we're like, well, it'd be really cool if like not everybody was from the pack world. In fact, we have. The Adari came on their ship from somewhere else. I'm sorry, the Kasafa came on their ship, the Adari, from somewhere else. So, it's been a long weekend so far. It sounds um, like you're saying that you could, one way to start building is to decide where everybody's home is. Yes, that's, the, the, that's a very good point. Yeah. And the Sheerans came from somewhere else, but then we also kind of said, well, the Vesk maybe have their own kind of place because we viewed them as kind of a very militaristic race. So, we created this other empire called the Vescarium, which is away from the Pact world. Well, how far away is it? And that's when we kind of hit on these circles of, feel free to jump into it. 
Where is the Vescari in relationship to the Vecros? The Vescari is in near space. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but what we what we uh, what we realized with a galaxy is such a big place, and none of us working on the game were like astrophysicists and stuff. And it's like trying to map out where everything is in a galaxy seemed like a fool's errand. So we decided with the idea of the drift. This is the hyperspace dimension uh, that sort of connects everything together, and you navigate through the drift by using drift beacons, which are they're in both. Are they in both the drift and in... I forget. But you know, right? I will. I'm happy to tell you. It's not relevant. Okay, fair enough. So, But drift beacons are how you navigate through the drift, and so it kind of became the density of drift beacons determines how easy it is to get there. And so near space is called near space because the systems that are in near space have a higher density of drift beacons, so it's faster to travel there. And they could actually be on completely opposite ends of the galaxy, two near space systems. So it's not about geographic closeness, it's about travel time closeness. And the vast is even farther, or it takes longer to travel because there are fewer drift beacons out in the vast. I think it's a good idea. I mean, personally, I think it's a good idea to not map everything out. I think that that's actually a really great feature of Starfinder, that there's not an exact star map of where every star system is in relation to each other because is it really important to the game, that relationship? No. Especially the way the drift works, so. I have a question. Well, I think that with it being astrophysics, that map would be changing constantly, right. drastically, so that's not even really And it would have to be three dimensional, so. Yeah. We had a question. I was not concerned at all with space here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me sync it up. Uh, in another panel about uh, whether we map out where planets are in orbit at all times. And, and the answer is we just simulate that with the travel time being a random role rather because maybe the planets are on opposite ends of the solar system, maybe they're right next to each other in orbit at that time. And that's a much simpler way to encapsulate that experience then. But that's also part of building the whole setting is like with, with everything far flung across the galaxy, the drift and the travel between them is what kind of connects everything together. And I think by also not mapping where I, I always felt that that would let GMs kind of just place their own plans. If they wanted to create a planet or a system, they could just put it in anywhere. And that doesn't prevent you even from having like neighboring star systems that are, I'll say, geographically close, even though they're not astronomically close. Thank you, that makes sense. Um, you know, you could still do that and, and have that hopped away, and you could have that for your campaign, but for us, it wasn't as important to say, this is... And we even do, actually, we say the Vescarium is, like, the nearest... I think we said it's, like, the nearest inhabited system to the... in terms of actual distance, um, but it doesn't really matter in terms of the travel time. So, that that kind of... What that allowed us to do by dividing into this, we kind of had like a, when we were first doing this, a big whiteboard with like these bullseyes kind of showing how the, the thing to get our heads around it. And, but by focusing on one system first, one solar system, that gave us a much more localized thing that we could detail in more, um, in more detail. And of course you could do, if you're, if you're working on your own thing, you could go even farther down to, well, I'm going to just work on a single world or, and that's one of the, actually, I think one of the great things about Starfinder is the sort of scalability of scope of the game. You can run an entire Starfinder campaign in a single city or on a single planet or in a single solar system. Or you could go all over the whole galaxy. It's kind of as much detail as you want to put into it. And, uh, and that's why I like to start with scope because then you can dial in where's, wherever is interesting to you and your players if you're running a game um, and just build it out as you need it. And it's and kind of like the home village in a fantasy game. Right. The whole, you start at the home planet, you know, and then expand it there. So. And in Starfinder, you, you you can have your home base be your starship that it goes yeah, with you yeah. everywhere, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, you can enlist NPC, fun things like that. It's also the purpose of your campaign is to determine how your galaxy is built. Like, yeah. if you're doing a Star Wars type campaign, then uh, you probably have much more random feel to how, how these planets are dispersed around space and each planet would have its own characteristics uh, and often its own entire biome, for example, like the, the ice planet or the ocean planet or the forest. We talk about in the core rule book with Starfinder kind of calling that out that like, yeah, most planets are going to have multiple biomes, <laughs> but there are some that are no, you know, they have predominance of ice fields or lava things, <laughs> so they get called the lava planet, which is useful. 
And the same thing would go for an exploration type galaxy where you want the players to hop around and explore things and just be murder uh, hobos. Well, or, or just explorers, like you know, murder explorers. <laughs> you just find new places. I mean, that that's also a, a more Star Trek type of situation where you're just hopping around different points in the galaxies, and it's the first time your your characters have been there. That might not. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own society and, uh, its, and its, own, its own warfare where they don't really have warfare. It's simulated. In a, just the people on the sheets turn the badge out of the dark. I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a question. Yeah, um, so how do you avoid doing that with the, the, the lava planet and the ice planet and everything? Like how, do you, how do you make the planet seem dynamic even when you're working on such a large scale as designing an entire system? I think it's okay to start with that concept, like yeah. the idea that, okay, well, this planet is highly tectonically and volcanically active. Um, and then you just add stuff to it. Like another, a, a way to do that is to look at actual volcanic landscapes, like Hawaii's volcanic landscape. And, uh, there are volcanoes under the sea. There are volcanoes in Antarctica, stuff like that. So, and, but it's also just what you want. Like you know, we do have a few worlds that are of a predominant climate, or especially moons around the asteroids, stuff like that. So, and it kind of depends on the sort of campaign you want to run too, because like, because you have so much variety in like the space of a galaxy, and if the players are actually traveling around a lot, it might just be enough to say that's an ice world. Because if you want to show them a different biome, you know they're going to be going in the next adventure to another planet or something, and then you can do that there. Obviously, if you're a lot more focused on a single planet, you might want to do some of that other stuff, but. You know, it's hard to detail an entire planet. Pathfinder's been out for like 10 years now, and even all of Galarian hasn't been detailed with all of the campaign setting information for that. Even that, you know, is focused on a, a single continental area, based for the most part, and it's gradually expanded out. Well, and that gets to a good point, which also speaks to scope. If, if your adventure is going to call for the, your player characters to land on this planet in one area, do something in that one area, and then leave, there's no reason to detail the whole thing other than maybe visually, like what it looks like from space and what information they might gain if they scan the planet. And then and the, the detail is where it is in the landing zone, right? the exploration area, it doesn't have to do anything else. And that could be totally one line. And then one other final one I'm throwing in is uh, contrast like the ice planet that has a temperate belt, like very thin temperate. And you're actually going to draw the player then to the temperate belt, not the ice. So if you want them to go to the ice, then have it be the lava planet that has this weird ice cap for some reason. So that's interesting and weird. And it's gonna, they're going to be lined for that. Yeah, or like a tightly locked planet where like the one right. side is totally, I mean, we have that first seed yeah. and that, which is, a, or Avalon is, Avalon, no, Avalon's like, Mercury is tightly locked, but Avalon is Avalon, I think. Um, I just wanted to um, add to something that you were, you were already saying, is unless you're, uh, so I've run a lot of Star Wars games, yeah. a lot of Star Wars games, um, and I've spoken to people that work in Lucasfilm about why they do some of the things they do, um, and unless what, what, they, what they were talking about is that basically their planets are always set dressing for a scene. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, like in a game situation, unless you're going to be having your characters on that planet for a very long time, that planet only needs to be set dressing for however long they're there. So that's why you have a biome that's all forest or all desert or what have you. So in the Star Wars galaxy, you can basically take every single planet you see and put it on a flat projection map, and it's essentially one continent with all these different places that the player characters do. That's, I just wanted to. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, feel feel free to share your own ideas about and, this too. And our teammate, our colleague Owen, said the same thing. I mean, he's familiar with the Star Wars property. He said, he yeah. said that that was the same thing. I mean, I think if it's important to you that the, the players get a sense like this planet has something more dynamic and real than the information that they see from space and get from the scanning of space is probably enough. Where they land, et cetera, something like that. Yeah, it's important to hear your players, obviously. That's it. That's important to know yeah. if, if you want some hyper-realistic thing or not. And then uh, that can also be a way to communicate to players that, like, yeah, this is Ice Planet. All you really need to know is that there's Ice there. And, you can take that. and it is science fantasy, so you can have yeah. all kinds of oh, yeah. stuff. So.
when it comes to, you know, like in one of the articles that's coming out for a type of swarm, there's a, a planet that's totally shattered and still in its atmosphere. And it's being, it's being held together by magic. So uh, it's nothing realistic. Well, who's to say that, you know, a planet couldn't be, you know, an artificial construct with just, uh, you know, organic material on the outside, kind of like in Treasure Planet, you know, the, the centroid of me- the mechanism type thing. So I, I like to use the word world for these things because it includes pretty much anything, like space stations and uh, world ships and uh, generation ships. That, that kind of thing is actually like a really good a really good starting point, like some kind of inspiration. Like we talked about scope, and that's kind of that's really you need to have a sense of like what scope do you want your setting to be, um, like like we've talked about. But you know, it's like we were kind of lucky because we already had this solar system created for Pathfinders. So we had the basis there, and we're like, all right, well now we just need to sort of update it to the future and take out some Pathfinder stuff and add some new stuff in for for Starfinder. But some any kind of like inspiration that you take from science fiction or even from history or something, which I always look at history for for I'm a big history buff, so I like looking for you know, whether it's some sort of conflict like Chris was talking about or some sort of place that did something or even just like a you know, like a planet like you said that can give you a starting point, and then you know you can start if you start fleshing out this one area, you'll start you might start getting other ideas. You know, like, well, I can either make that a new planet, or I could put it on this thing, or this could be somewhere something else, and then you can just start kind of organically building it in that way. So, kind of looking for touchstones, or it's like, oh, you know, the Star Wars movies—they went to Coruscant, this whole you know planet city. That's really cool. I want to do a planet city, and you can take those inspirations from almost anywhere and use that to start seeding things throughout what you're trying to build or what you want to do. Reminds me that you know when you asked me about Drift Beacons earlier. It's super helpful to keep track of what you're coming up with. Also um, true. One of the hardest <laughs> things for us is, you know, we bandy about a lot of ideas, and then only some things get actually published and <laughs> are what are true, you know, it or canon for us. So sometimes it's like, where did we end up with that? And having an internal wiki or something that you can keep track of what, what you want <laughs> uh, and, and other ideas you've had along the way to, for further inspiration for your future self. Just as an aside, that's why when you're developing something, you go to, uh, you say, oh, I think it's that way. I better read that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always find new things in the core books. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And that's also, I mean, if particularly if you're doing your own home campaign, we can't do this, but you can, you know, certainly easy to steal from other games and, and bring them into your game and just like the concepts or whatever you know we have to and we want to publish our own u- unique material but there's all sorts of ways you know just because something was published for another game particularly for setting stuff a lot of that can be easily brought over and you can take pieces from all sorts of different things to construct to construct things around and I, think, I mean you can get inspiration from anywhere just get those first and you need a big picture idea of how certain things work to me the reason I made a joke about capitalism is because Starfinder is a capitalist galaxy. Star Wars is definitely a capitalist galaxy, but Star Trek drifts away from that idea. Star, Star Trek is more like uh, a more utopian. Or a more Until they meet other people that do have money, then there's this weird mix yeah, like yeah, Deep yeah. Space Nine where some people have money and some people don't. And I don't know. But, but, you can't have my gold press Latinum. Yeah, so that... But... Um, the more egalitarian society is, the more the less conflict there is. So it depends. I mean, so in games, it's often about conflict. Yeah. So the more moving parts that can create conflict, maybe the better. I mean, it just depends on the themes you want to explore. For part of the game. And those again kind of go through all levels too. It's like if you look at the Starfinder universe, you have Absalom Station, which is kind of the center of the Pact worlds, and so we have groups on Absalom Station, like the Strong Absalom Movement, um, or the um, it's still those clones, so I can't remember the. Well, they're not only restricted to to Absalom Station, but but then you kind of go out into the wider pack. Cymar Collective. Thank you. Yeah, the Cymar Collective. There was one of the panels we only could not remember the name of uh, this group of clones from Absalom Station. So we have some. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's, and there's you know like different street games and security and all that kind of stuff, but then there's also groups that operate in a wider sense in the uh, in the solar system itself. So things like the Android Abolitionist Front or the uh, the Stewards, which are sort of a 
peacekeeping force of the of the pack world. And then there's these sort of bigger galactic threats like the swarm and the unseen and the cult of the devourers. So there's kind of these different levels of conflict that there's also groups that are not as conflicty, but they're kind of there as a counterpoint because but you also have like um, the forces of extra planar forces in Starfinder, like also true. the forces of hell and heaven and forces of our celestial. Or the plane said, of fire. They said the forces of Evan. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or the plane of fire. Or yeah, the plane of fire. Or the Velstrax. Yeah, yeah, or the shadow plane. Yeah, exactly. So. Not to hammer on the word scope too much, but that's exactly how I think of it. Is you know, you can have the solar. What's the solar system story? You know, the pack worlds. They've been invaded a couple times. Uh, uh, then you zoom in, and, and they're a collective right now with the Vescarian race. You can have them in from your space. And then we go to pack worlds. It's like there's. A little bit of conflict, probably, with the best in some like remote spots. You know, people have longer memories than hundred years, and then uh, you go to any one planet, and like, how does each of those planets interact with that sort of like EOS? You know, there's this corpusy nonsense where are they? They're not officially tied to them anymore, but maybe there's something going on there that's in direct conflict with the pact, pact worlds. And then you can go to a city on EOS, and it just goes forever. Even uh, just on any given world or planet uh, going to a settlement, does that settlement, does that kind of toe the line and, and enforce the status quo of that world, or is it like standing in opposition to it, or, and then people well, Is it Austin, there. Texas, or not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like lots of little switches you can, you yeah. know, toggle for each of these things. On this one planet, it's like this, and you know, and all different. Um, I also, I mean, I mentioned history earlier, and I think that's as you start developing these things, thinking about history as well, and, and it's boring to some people, I know, but it's not to me. And But also having some sort of sense of history or addressing it in some sense also, I think, gives life to a setting, um, or even the lack of it, because in Starfinder we have the gap, and part of that is a, is a meta thing to sort of separate Starfinder from Pathfinder because they take place in the same location, basically, in the galaxy. But it's also that... Per, that creates like this big mystery. 300 years ago, everyone just suddenly realized they couldn't remember anything from before that point. That's and because that's when the simulation got turned Possibly. <laughs> that thing, is it a simulation? That's the, that's the sort of thing we even say in the core rule book. History is broken in Starfinder. And that means you don't have to sit there and have all this really old stuff and everything, but there is something there in the past that everybody knows about that serves to kind of bring everything together in a weird way. And so it can either be the lack of history or it can be, oh, these guys, this solar system fought this solar system for a hundred years, and what kind of things has that caused these societies to do, or that kind of stuff, like you're the people fighting the war and just the people machines they were fighting so long, yeah. they just stopped actually literally fighting. Yeah. Something to keep in mind that that is, you know, that's always going to be super fascinating to you, uh, and I think the most important thing for players and people who are consuming their world, their galaxy they're building, is what what impact does that history have now? Like, definitely. Uh, and and it's really great when you when you've done all that work and laid all this foundation, then it'll really make sense. Like these the tip of the iceberg conflicts that are happening now. Uh, if people are interested, then there's a lot of support for them that you've built. Uh, but it's really like, how can we impact what's happening right now? That's totally the key point, definitely. You could actually work backwards. You could say something is true in an adventure or, or your solar system and then explain why as you go along. And how did it get to that? Yeah, I was just say, that's, that's how I like start wise. Like, what's the cool scene, the badass scene that I want to make it now? You got to figure out a reason why. Why is that yeah. obvious there yeah. on the planet yeah. with uh, simians dancing around it? This also works. <laughs> Other toggles that uh, you talked about history or lack thereof. There's a lot of things or lack thereof that you could mess with um, in building a whole galaxy, like such a sci-fi fantasy, right? Like, how much technology is there? Do they have drift travel? Do they have just regular starships? Do they have vehicles? Do they have fire? <laughs> like, you know, all the way down. And then magic also. Uh, and high magic, low magic, no magic. The combinations of those can be really interesting. And again, going if you're on a high magic world, then there's a settlement where, for some reason, no magic works. That's already something uh, that you can build on. Uh, faith, you know, yeah, it mm -hmm. interaction with other planes, like just a million things that you can. Like you can have a planet where they don't believe in aliens, or that the kings of the planet are other gods, people or whatever. Which can be <laughs> from people coming outside from outside who believe in other obviously extant gods. 
because the star finding universe, the gods are there's evidence that the god exists. Gods exist, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like we don't know if God is real. Yes, we do. Well, that's a topic you can use in your own galaxy. Like, yeah. can are the gods observable? Do they have places that they actually live? Um, can they speak to their followers directly? Do they manifest as heralds or avatars? I mean, what are the rules? And even in the game like Starfinder, you know, where you do where the gods are a real part of the thing, it's like who's to say there's not a planet where for some reason the gods have no presence there whatsoever. Why is that the case? You know, those people just have never Yeah, it may be like you but and that kind of leads, I think, to another thing which is not really a toggle, but something to seed in there, which the gap kind of serves like this, is mysteries. Um, some kind of secrets or mysteries that are there to kind of hook the players in there, give something that people don't know about it, something interesting. And you don't even have to, when you're creating these things, you don't have to necessarily figure out that mystery right now. You can set up what the mystery is, and some of the best things is if your players kind of latch onto that and start giving theories, they'll actually tell you what the mystery is. <laughs> you, can, you can do sort of play with their expectations, but that kind of brings them into the world, and particularly if, they're, if you haven't already figured out everything. Of course you can, but then... It really kind of helps connect them to the setting, and I guess they can do some of your work for you because they. Yeah, we said this the other day in the GM panel, and that was that you should definitely steal from your players. Um, if you don't actually allow them to help build the galaxy or the world from the very beginning, then make some of the things that they theorize about your galaxy true or your world true. Like, and that way, when they find those things to be true, they go, "I knew it all along." And it's a thrilling moment. So, uh-huh. so it's My players can tell sorts of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about using tools like Microscope in conjunction with your players to build worlds and universes? It's a great idea. Like when I think of scope, I was literally thinking of microscopes. Like I'm not going to talk about that game. <laughs> but that's a game where you establish a timeline, basically, and then you set scenes somewhere in that timeline, and you can go as deep as you want or as broad as you want and it's all about like scaling up and down as you create the world and that, that is really reliant on people just being very creative and uh, and feeling free to do whatever they want uh, so if, you're, if your friends and players are down to do that I think it's a really cool tool for building building history specifically since it's a timeline based thing but yeah I think it's great to use any tool that your entire group finds like fun to use to to build something that you all find intriguing and then you can explore together. So, yeah, why would you? I think you need people for a setting, generally speaking, unless it's just the player character. So, that's, that's Which could be a really weird setting. <laughs> it could be. Not a whole lot. Lost in Space is kind of like that yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. They're usually the only people, if I remember right, that there's bugs and other weird but stuff. But you can have a setting where the characters like wake up on their starship and they're the only people that they run into forever. And that even kind of goes into like that, that can connect to other pieces like religion. So in terms of the core races of Starfinder, some of those um, were existed in Pathfinder first. Like the Kasathas were first introduced in Pathfinder. Androids were introduced in Pathfinder. Obviously humans um, I think those are the only... Well, Yasoki rat folk have been in Pathfinder too, but then we had like... Yeah, sorry, the right the, the tracks. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're not one of the core... I was talking about like, the core rule book. But yeah, it's, uh, certainly the people on the planet, but when we talked about like we created the the Vesk and the, and the Sheeran, and we talked about like they needed a home world too, but when we were working on the pantheon of the core 20 gods for Starfinder, you know, it's like we took a lot of gods from Pathfinder as well because we had that basis. But it's like, well, the best were never in Pathfinder. So I really wanted to make sure that each of the core races in the core rulebook had a deity that was their sort of patron deity. So there's Talavet, who's like a Safa god. There's Demoratash, who's the best god. Hylax is the... And there may be even more, but there's at least one of them, since they're the core races in the setting, at least one of their gods is one of the core gods of the setting too. And that just helps connect those new pieces to the setting. It also seems like to me, as someone who is not present for that process, that a lot of the species of core Starfinder echo um, some expected tropes in science fiction, you know, like the warlike race and uh, the insect race. And of course, human, you need humans to anchor things because 
you know, new players actually gravitate towards the familiar. So Cuban helps that, but not. And the psychic race, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that's actually yeah, having some kind of grounding in reality because it's fun to go super, super weird, but you also need touchstones for people, or they're just going to get lost in all your made-up words and places. And if yeah. nothing makes sense, then you're, you're setting yourself up for. And there's, I mean, if you're starting a new group and you have some new players, there are people around who's at the table and say they want to play and they're going to name some science fiction race, like Klingons. And I say, okay, we have to play Vesque because it's close. It's a similar trope. A warlike species that values honor and military service. Right. Alien building panel, we were also talking about needing to gloss over often. Like, fact that a lot of alien species are not really going to understand each other, even like at the most fundamental level, they would never really be able to communicate or like possibly understand what where the other person is coming from, so you kind of have to, I, you don't have to, but I feel like it's a lot smoother for world building to say like, yeah, there's common languages or technology to address that, or, or at least like, yeah, they live in cities of some kind, even if they're like underwater upside down. That could also be a feature of your galaxy. Why do all these aliens, yeah. why are all these aliens able to communicate to each other? Why are they all typically humanoid in form? Or, or typically humanoid, or plus like the Kasatas have multiple arms. That there's a reason for that in our Yeah. But it's also, um, I just totally forgot I was going to say something about that. I just totally forgot. Probably that it's good to also have communication barriers because that's conflict. Right, it was yeah. about the communication. So we were we were trying to figure when we were first working on the game, it was like, well, what do we do? We want universal translators. It was just a typical Star Trek thing. And it's like, well, well we have things like the culture skill, which in. You know, it's like it's. It seemed more fun to have a first contact thing where you're just not going to automatically be able to communicate with everyone, and so that was a decision we specifically made so that people could make use. And you know, we wanted people to be able to learn, pick up ranks and culture, which would give them new languages, and so that that I think adds some some element of realism to to the game. It's not that hard to overcome with you know, either magic or learning the languages. And then, but then in the other direction for the Starfinder beginner box, we just kind of got rid of languages. Completely, because it's we wanted to bring new players in and sort of, you know, not not pile on too many things that they had to know about. So it's like, yeah, in the beginner box Starfinder, everybody can talk to everybody because we don't want to put any kind of barriers to just having fun and playing the game. Well, in default Starfinder, you know, people, people from the past worlds, that's why people are just speak to each other. They all speak common anyway. Exactly, and we have sort of the common tongues of planets too. So, so the Shunta tongue is the common tongue of Castrovel, So pretty much everybody in Castrovel will speak. So would you say that it's an equally important question to ask yourself in addition to scope is how weird do I want to make this? Sure. Mm -hmm. like, like what level of spin can I put my That's totally, yeah. Like, and, and also kind of knowing, particularly if you're like creating it for a home game, you want something, it's going to be based on your players. Like, if your players don't like really crazy, weird stuff, it's probably not best to create a really weird thing unless you, and kind of, because you want to, yeah, I mean, you kind of want to give everybody the, the thing that they want, but again, with something as big as a galaxy, there there is room for weirdness in different places too. They can just be like a little sprinkling of weirdness. I, I can see. Might have to be a, a default a little weird because of that. Honestly, like I don't know. Sure. Like my expectation, I'd be. I think I would think it was weird if there was a galaxy that somehow did not have any weird stuff in it. Like how? But again, if, if we're talking about a super narrowed scope, yeah, like yeah. you're just on a single planet, you know, or you're just doing a cyberpunk thing. But even then, I mean, I, I think in a science fantasy game, a little bit of weirdness is good because like Russ Forward's the Akaton. Yeah. <laughs> um, we gotta keep talking about. Oh, there's one. So how um how important do you think it is for uh, kind of like. Uh, logical consistency functioning of the galaxy, like, you know, do we worry about farms, you know, kind of deal? I think, from my perspective, I think there needs to be some kind of, in, like, internal consistency, but it, it kind of depends, like, if you're talking about things on a, on a planetary scale, as long as you haven't said, this planet is a complete wasteland, one can assume that there's farms and all the stuff, all the infrastructure to support a society on, on that planet. 
Um, but you don't need to detail you know everything out, and I think that's kind of for me. It's like because it's a science fantasy universe. If you, as long as you have a reason, even if it's not a game mechanical reason, but you write a few crazy sentences like, "Oh, a billion years ago, the god moved this planet over here, and that's why there's this weird stuff." That to me is enough because we've at least said something happened to cause this, and it doesn't match anything, but it's weird, and that's okay. Um, just having something that's completely out there that doesn't make any sense with no explanation, that I think can be okay, because then that kind of breaks people's suspension of disbelief. And on the flip side, it kind of harkens back to the, the one line. Uh, you could, uh, if it fits your story, if it's important to your story, like the system's bread basket planet is threatened by some threat, then yeah, having a, a farm world that's threatened by the swarm or something, you know, is perfect for creating conflict, like, not only will this planet be devastated, but billions will starve because it was devastated. But you don't necessarily care that it actually takes a hundred farm upside farm, <laughs> farm worlds to keep the civilization running. Uh, no. But you care about that farm world because it's getting attacked. Right, because that's helping you tell the story you want to tell, and otherwise it's, I mean, the, the game is mainly about conflict for the most part, so it's, it's not about economics and the Inter, interplanetary green trade, or yeah. unless your game is about that, but you know, if you don't have like, a moisture farm, you can't have a whiny here. Unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, less a question, more statement. I know we're not supposed to do this, but no, you can uh, do that here. by all means, okay. okay. This is a discussion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, the important part, I would, I would say, having done galaxies and Star Wars is it doesn't matter how weird you are as long as you're internally consistent, right? If, if you do something that's established as weird on one planet and then you completely change it on the other, your players are going to believe what the heck is happening. Unless you're in a universe or a galaxy where nothing makes any sense, in which case you're still internally consistent. Because players like consistency. Yeah, that's a big part of our job is to make sure that we're not you know, too inconsistent. It's impossible because there's just people put out so much stuff and also, there's the big convenient is magic. Well, the gap is there. Great. Yeah, the gap is super helpful. When um, one thing we avoid is superlatives, like this is the biggest blah, or this is the most ancient whatever. It's like because then you're just setting yourself up to forget that and then say it and somewhere else. Or you you want to setting yourself up, you you will forget that yes. that, that it was written that this is the yeah. last of the blah blah blahs. So the easy like, solution is one of the one of the last of yeah. them. <laughs> Actually, I guess uh, one of the challenges I run into is I I feel like I've got a lot more fodder for more hard sci-fi than really science fantasy. So what do you guys do to what do we do to bring more fantasy or, or less fantasy? More fantasy, to, right? Keep, okay. it, keep it from devolving into more of a sci-fi sort of... Planes definitely help. Yeah, planes and bullets definitely help, but just um, asking a lot of what-if questions, like what if magic affected this aspect of the society? Like, what would happen then? Uh, it, it can be easy to predict, for example, what humans would use magic. If magic were ubiquitous, what humans would use it for? Um, it's easy to predict that. And then you can just project that same thing on some different species and what you think about how they think. Like the Vesk, what would they use magic primarily for? Well, war, domination, becoming stronger. That's not the same thing humans would use it for. And it's also thinking you can think about the, the sort of things, you know, there, there's the old Arthur C. Clarke quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and everything, but you can kind of think about, well, here's a piece of like futuristic technology. Well, does it have to be technology or could it be magic or a hybrid of the two, you know? And so we have in Starfinder, the it's basically the thing that lets you re rewrite your character because you made bad choices. It's the mnemonic editor. So that could be a purely science fiction thing. This is just a tech that goes in there, edits your brain, but it's also, magic makes sense too, because there's memory-altering magic and that kind of stuff, in, certainly in Pathfinder, so you just flavor it that there's magic built into it as well, and it's like, well, does a flashlight need magic? Probably not, because it's a flashlight, but, you know, you can you can bring that kind of stuff in. a little magical flashlight that's just a little orb. 
that floats beside you maybe be cooler? Sure. I mean, yeah. And then there's just a personal upgrade too. That that's an item that literally is like one item, but you describe it two different ways. So three different two, ways. Three, yeah, three, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like a symbiote or a magic crystal or mm-hmm. And it's also kind of good, like if you're not really familiar with how the whole, um, how the real super advanced technology would work. Like I don't want to just use like a warp drive. I mean, it's kind of like Star Wars. I don't know, maybe in like the games and stuff, but they, they maybe they have. But like in the movies, I don't think they've really really talked about how hyperdrive works. <laughs> you know, but so we kind of did the same thing with our drift engines. Is well, we actually didn't because the, we. I was just thinking they were partly magical, but they're not because you need technology to enter the drift. But then that's kind of a weird counterpoint because we have a plane, which is a plane of existence, which is a magical thing, but you can only access it through technological means. And so that's mixing in that. And by accessing it by technological means, you pull pieces of other magical places into yeah. <laughs> Or it's also just about how to mix it. I mean, we had the planet of Triaxis, which is a lot of it is run by dragons. And that was the way it was at Pathfinder. So you move it forward into the future for Starfinder. And it's like, well, what, what would dragons do in the future? Oh, they'd probably run big corporations, you know, which is... A more modern concept, and that has, and, but because the dragon's running it, it's obviously a lot more fantastical than just. Yeah, I think to break it down, it's corporation. Yeah, to break it down, it's like you could take something that you know is technological, or even from our world, or inspired from our world, and say, what if it was magic? What would what would it be like? You know? And what would society be like if it was magic and not uh, technology? And then the reverse, right? What if you take something that is magical or legendary and then advance it into the future? How it is modified, or what does it become, or what does it inspire technologically, or as a hybrid of the two? Right, like potions and Pathfinder become spell ampules where you just inject the potion right into your bloodstream and everything. That's kind of a little, okay, I just drink my potion. So throwing the tech onto the magic instead. The I'm just thinking like you can try garbage just. The bottom of your sink. I was going to say, we're starting to see a lot of that in reverse too, right? Is that we create these, we create real world technological things. People are like, well, if you had magic, wouldn't you be able to do something like that? And so you get this kind of weird, magic y, user interface y kind of things you see in fantasy where it's like, you just put a computer in your fantasy setting and it's like, yeah. Ah, you know, it's, it's magic. <laughs> it's good enough for Superman in this fortress of solitude. It's good enough for yeah. <laughs> So we got scope, we got conflict, we've got people, we've got religion. Speaking of conflict, i got to head out early. So. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for all the fun ones. <laughs> we'll Chris and I will still be here for another yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. So. And we talked about magic and a hybrid of magic. Yeah. Um, we're trying to see if there's any other big portions of the, uh, you like three minutes to get down. <laughs> Any other questions or comments or what things you want to say about, about things? So uh, you mentioned that you know, one of the rules is you don't want to say like the holds, you know, create that, that entity. Are there any other kind of general rules when you're building galaxies that you'd like to stick to, things you like to just generally avoid saying because you know it's going to be a conflict when you're building things later on? It's a good question. I mean, also, you, you can say that, like, if you're creating your own setting, you can say this is the oldest thing. Just remember that that's the oldest thing and not, you know, and not do that. We Because we have a whole galaxy and we haven't done all of that, we don't want to accidentally, you know, trap ourselves with a, with a cannon trap. But for other big rules. I think a good rule is that posit mysteries, but don't solve them. So it's okay to say, it's okay for you to say something about your own home setting that... Just going to leave that open. It's question in your setting, but you don't have to solve it immediately because that then that leaves it open to the players actually giving you a better idea than you might have, for example. I'd also say like name dropping things, um, particularly like in a published setting, like like our setting. It's sometimes we'll talk about a planet or whatever and name drop a monster or a species that lives there, and that's both good for. GMs, and then they can take that, and if they want to go with it and create that, it also will go back and pick up. If they, well, we wrote this thing, 
we could totally do an adventure path around this one little like plot hook that we dropped and that kind of stuff. So we kind of, or somebody else wrote it ten years ago, and they're like, we're gonna we're gonna stat this thing up now. And well, we so, could put Itch Tikris or Stone Face Squid and Anarchy uh, Three. Yeah, and they were just mentioned the Vascarium. Yeah, one of the one of the races of the Vascarium. So, yeah. But it's also you don't ever even have to answer any question. Uh, it's a, it's a universal scale. Maybe there is an answer. Yeah, like in Starfinder, there are mis- there are question marks in the setting that we don't know the answer to. And we might sure. never you might just say that's always just a question. Like what caused the gap? Right. What happened during that? There are there are bits of information about that, that but only insofar as that they, those bits support stories that we want to talk. I think another good thing to do is kind of put in what I would call exceptions, like if there's sort of a, an overall truth or something. Like in the in the case of Starfinder, when the gap ended, the god Triune sent out a signal that sent the uh, the secret of drift travel basically to the whole galaxy. So everyone received it, and we talk about how like you know even some primitive or Stone Age races got this, and so they just have cave paintings of drift engine schematics because they have no idea what they are. But for some reason, the Vescarium did not receive the signal. So everybody else is going out and spreading out through the galaxy except the Vesk until people from the Pact World showed up. Hey, we've got drift engines. And the Vesk were like, that's really interesting. And then as soon as they had it, they attacked the Pact World. You know, but that was sort of the exception. Why did the Vesk? We don't know why, but that creates an interesting story and created the conflict between the Vescarium and the Pact World just because they did not get it for some reason. So that's an exception to the universal. Everybody got it. Maybe they owe Triune money. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but we don't know because Triune just showed up after the gap too. So you You can also like make underlying truths that are apparent to you, and then but the players have to peel back the layers to find those truths. Like um, maybe the gods are real in your setting, but there's no way to know that until you describe something while during playing the campaign. Or maybe they aren't real, and there's a way to discover that. So. I know I keep talking. Um, something that I always do when I'm world building is uh, I have a sheet of paper, and I write six things on it, and two of those are actual historical fact. Two of them are legends that are based in history but might not be true, and two are myths which are complete fabrications. And then it's up to the players to figure out which ones are which. And uh, that's always, I find, one of the things, especially if I'm running a, a space game, it's always fun to drop that in when they're talking about what about this planet that we're going to that they have those things and it's up to them to figure out what's going on and how each of these applies and some of them you know again the big question marks some of them are never actually true there's complete fabrications but everybody knows that when you go to the, the rock planet of Baby that you know every, every thousand years it falls into the sun so it doesn't actually happen but everybody knows that space rumors yeah well and I'm the kind of GM that if the players really latched onto something that was really important to them to discover that as we missing, like it was really important to them for that to be true, even if I said it wasn't when I was doing my notes, I might make it true. But everybody Just knows Big has a planetary force field. It doesn't really. So they show up at Big and they're like, where's the planetary force field? Oh no, something must have happened. Yeah. Exactly. The misinformation thing is a like everybody in this room, what do you do when you find the Tootsie Pop wrapper with the star on it? You know, everybody thought that was a thing in the nineties. It was never a thing, you know. <laughs> and it's if you asked any kid who went to school in that era, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, it's totally we didn't know." You know? And I know someone who did that. Every day, everybody knew somebody that did. Everybody knew someone that found it. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> that got the prize from Tootsie. Yeah. So you can put that kind of stuff in your world and flesh it out even more. Hey, there was a hand back there. When you've got an idea or inspiration and you're developing this world that you know that everyone uh, around here is going to consume it uh, as such a Starfinder, do you find it easier, um, if it doesn't quite fit, do you find it easier to bend the rules of your world to make it fit or to toss the idea? Uh, neither. I adjust both ways. Yeah. So, if something doesn't fit, then I'll adjust the thing. Usually I'll just adjust the thing to fit, but 
if there's a good reason for something that doesn't fit to be there, then I'll try to find another explanation for that, which is kind of easy to imagine. So, but yeah. But it's not like really bending the, the game rules necessarily, because obviously we're doing, we don't want to do that. Um, I mean, but unless it's like, there is some exception-based design where you can have something that does, the one thing that does it differently. But yeah, and generally we do that because, and I think that's even good even if you're not, even if you're you know using house rules in your game, if you bend too much stuff, then the players don't know what's actually real all the time. So it's, again, it speaks to the consistency of the setting, but also consistency of the of the rules as well. So I think we do tend to bend the idea a little bit more, unless yeah. we can just say, yeah, don't create a rule subsystem for something when it can just be explained with something that exists in the rules already, just maybe in a different way, you know, or with a slight reference, with a slight adjustment and a reference back. It's just not worth it. Do you want so uh, one of the things that I, I've used recently is I just I try to uh, come up with kind of the feeling of uh, the setting that I want. I don't come up with any strict details. I get the player started with a feeling, you know, like uh, I want it to have that kind of firefly firefly feel, or I want it to have a Star Wars feel, or I I, I typically do not lean towards the the clean Star Trek feel. I like pretty sci-fi, so, um, you know, like the expanse and things like that. So I tend to, when I start out a game, I kind of I kind of explain the feeling that I want, that I think the game should have, and then I sit there and pay attention to what they say, and I write notes down, because uh, they're going to give me ideas for that story as I write it. Well, in a a setting like... Star Trek, the conflicts can be difficult, more difficult to find, but often it's more like a Monster of the Week type uh, TV show or Planet of the Week TV show. You know, you, the, the conflict then becomes localized and individual because we just warped into the system and we found this planet with this weird thing going on, and oh no, the Prime Directive. <laughs> that's a really good point though in terms of even with the scope and everything is you can even call like the theme of the of the setting or the campaign that it kind of serves because even the Starfinder we've tried to leave it really open so people can play lots of different themed things in, in different areas of the whole galaxy um, but that can help certainly for a, for a smaller more focused campaign thing definitely to give that kind of feel and let everyone know that, and then you can sort of create yourself based on that, you know, so I think that is a really good thing, what is the theme or the feel of the campaign you're trying to do, is it the greedy cyberpunk thing, is it a shiny Star Trek, is it Firefly or The Expanse, so, I'm a huge fan of The Expanse too, so. Yeah, I think it's important to get that sort of underpinning, because, you know, drilling down to details before getting that sort of underpinning, uh, it's, it's probably going to, A, be harder, and uh, B, you're going to eventually find things that if, if you do the feeling and, and the stuff like that that you're going for afterward, you're going to find that you created stuff that doesn't fit that theme. And then you have to adjust it or throw it away. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to focus in a little bit on like the people. You know, when you build a, a world and you're populating with people, how much, how much do you like to have the planet that you build affect how you build the people? Like, do you like to have, you know, you've written, say you've written an ecology. How much do you like to have that ecology directly affect, like, the racial traits or the appearance of the, you know, the, the people that you were putting on it? Or do you just kind of make them both separate? That's a good question. I think that there there is... Uh, you can approach that from a number of different angles. I think that in, a, in all of those angles are valid, but I can give an example of something that appears in number 17, which is an entirely new alien species that lives inside the sun. But they live in something that you as player characters can explore, which means they can't possibly be living directly in the solar plasma. So why is that? What are they living on? What is that environment like? How did they get there? You know, and so all that stuff is explained. Like, and it's a place that where they live that you can explore, and they are terrest- they are basically terrestrial humanoids, but they have a backstory that explains all of that. Like how they got into the sun, why they're there, 
and how they survived there and why they are how they are. I'd say that's actually kind of an exception to what we normally do. I think it really depends on what the needs of your setting or your campaign are. So in this case, this race was created for, as we were plotting out this whole adventure path, and we knew the adventure path took place in the sun, so they kind of worked together. But we like, oh, we wanted a new race. We already knew where they were going to go by the time we got to creating them. Right. For the rest of it, because we're doing a game, setting is, is often a little bit secondary to that. I mean, if you look at the core rule book, the setting chapter is one chapter. The rule book is everything else. So the same thing when we're working on an alien archive. We come up with an idea for a monster or some kind of concept or for one of the races in the core races, and then, okay, so we got the vets and they're lizard people and blah, blah, blah. Then you kind of build the home world or whatever around that race because we created that first for the game. Because what's most what's most important is this is a book of monsters. We need monsters to fight. And then kind of you step that up and then you're like, oh, well, these, you know, these guys, I made them immune to cold. Well, why is that? And then that could, you know, that could come into the flavor of the world that they're from. For That's example. a pretty common part of the development job. So a pretty common part of the development job is taking a design and saying and connecting threads from the setting to this design. And making it seem like solidly Starfinder. Yeah, it seems like the the harder something is to swallow, the more you have to explain. Right, the like alien race that lives inside the sun. That's really hard to maintain suspension of disbelief. Right, so now you have to keep going in, answering the questions that you go people will ask until they stop asking questions. Right, like the the lizard people who are all about the military and they're all the military. It's like, oh, cool sci-fi trip, not good. That's fine, that exists. Cool. The other people live inside the sun. How did that happen? And one of the fun things about this particular situation is that the sun in Pack World Solar System is not like our sun. It is in some ways. It does match those physics some ways, but in Pathfinder, they said that the sun is a mixture of energy from the plane of fire and the positive energy plane. So. All that plays a part in and and in, in uh, how things work inside the sun, and it plays a part in the species and how they survive. Which book is the species? Solar Strike. It's uh, AP volume number seventeen. Donald Plain, Adventure Path. Is that released? I think Solar Strike comes out next month. The Blind, the Blind City is the one released this month. Yeah, the Blind City just came out. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three minutes. If anybody has a last, uh, last couple of questions or comments, Chris, you want to add anything? Well, yeah, I'll add something. When you're doing this, I mean, this is kind of a rainy day activity for GM or or pre-game activity. It's supposed to be fun for you too, so you should just do whatever entertains you. I mean, that sounds kind of trite, but that's and that's why I'm saying it at the end. But uh, it should be entertaining for you. It should be something that you like and something that you enjoy enjoy doing. I, I don't think it should be work. It can be work. Yeah. For, you know, but if if you're not getting paid for it, then just do do as much of it as you enjoy, and then steal everything else from your players. <laughs> and, that kind of gets in, and that kind of goes back to that sort of central thing, you know, if, if you don't have a lot of time but you want to do a new thing, you create a local place that's relatively small scale for your for your players to, to kind of get to know first, whether it's a village or a city in a, I mean, that can be the same as Starfinder, you know, and then maybe a few, just a few ideas about a really rough sketch map of sort of nearby things, and then as the game goes forward, you start populating that thing, and if the players start wanting to go over here, you start taking those ideas and fleshing out these areas as you go. Like you don't have to create an entire nation, country; those are the kind of the same things. Uh, world, solar system, all that kind of stuff. You know, you can start small and expand as you need to. And the good um, thing about galaxy building, at least in the Starfinder style, is that that map doesn't need to be anything but relative. Yeah. So. Now, like one of the things I like in the back of the Starfinder APs is we have this codex of worlds. Every month, we just create a little planet, and we have a whole galaxy, so those just drop in there, and gradually we'll have an entirely populated galaxy full of planets. But, you know, anyone can take one of those planets and use that as a center of a campaign or a hook for an adventure and everything, and it just lets us 
gradually sort of expand the setting, and we might go back to one of those at some point, but it's also just, hey, it's more than just the pack worlds or what we can talk about in our three big hardbacks every year. You know, or just a place you land for one encounter. Yeah. yeah but there's, the, the, there's enough there that you can do some, a pretty thematic encounter there. So, so 500 words. Yeah, it's like 500 words, so it's not we're not spending a whole lot of time. It's just, you just have to decide, are they in your space? Or are they in the vast? And what's kind of the hook? And back to something we were talking about before, we just tell you what the planet is like. Occasionally, we'll do like a raise a, a, a new species, and then we'll stack them up immediately in our five net volume too. But yeah. all right, we're just about out of time. So thank you, everyone, for coming to the panel.